This is The Rounds Table. Hello and welcome to The Rounds Table, a weekly podcast about major new research in medicine hosted online at Healthy Debate. I'm pinch hitting this week for Kieran. I am your guest host, Amol Verma, one of the internists at St. Michael's Hospital in Toronto. And I'm joined today by my friend Fahad Razak, also an internist at St. Mike's in Toronto. Hey, Fahad, how's it going? Great. It's great to be back. So, Fahad, you wanted to talk about body weight fluctuations and outcomes in coronary disease. So tell me, what's the bottom line from this study? So the main message, this was a post hoc analysis of a prior trial called the TNT trial, which was a lipid lowering trial. And these researchers looked at patients who had fluctuations in body weight during that trial, and they found that it was related to higher rates of mortality, cardiovascular events, and even cardiovascular risk factors like diabetes. Okay, so tell me a bit about this background. What did we know about body weight fluctuation before this study? Why is this study novel and interesting? Yeah, so, so at its broadest level, weight loss, something that we counsel a lot of our overweight and obese patients around, is thought to improve a lot of health outcomes. Interestingly, this relationship between body weight and outcomes, though, is not as established in patients who already have an underlying disease, for example, cardiovascular disease, renal failure. And there's something called the obesity paradox, which is that some studies have suggested that patients with higher body weight, once they have an underlying disease, may have better survival. And that's controversial, and there's a lot of research around that. Now, what about weight fluctuation? Um, We commonly prescribe to our patients a weight loss regimen, get more exercise, eat better. And unfortunately, for many of our patients, what ends up happening is weight cycling and weight fluctuation. They lose some weight, they gain some weight. They lose some weight, they gain some weight. And that phenomena of weight cycling itself has also been linked a number of decades ago, actually, to increase mortality. Now, the question is, in a secondary prevention group, so in patients with existing coronary disease, is weight fluctuation harmful? Does it have a link to cardiovascular outcomes or mortality? And that's what these authors looked at. I mean, just this strikes me as a very relevant question as someone, you know, whose weight can sometimes fluctuate. Yes, your weight does fluctuate. (laughs) Yeah, so I'm curious. Okay, so tell me about this study. You said that it's a post-hoc analysis of a randomized trial. So tell me about the study and the participants that were in the study. Uh, Right. So this is a post-hoc analysis of 10,001 patients with already existing coronary disease uh, who were in a lipid-lowering trial called a TNT trial. The trial looked at 10 milligrams versus 80 milligrams of atorvastatin, and it had follow-up of these individuals in three-month intervals initially and then every six months to a median of about five years of follow-up. During these follow-up clinic appointments, they also measured body weight, so they were able to capture body weight fluctuation in the follow-up interval. And there's a lot of ways that you can think about body weight fluctuation, and what they looked at was one core measure, which is the absolute difference in body weight between clinic visits, and then they averaged that over all of the clinic visits. So there was an average rate of change in body weight. Um, And then they did statistical modeling around whether that change was predictive of outcomes like death or cardiovascular events. They used two ways of looking at it. Without getting into too many details, they used a time-dependent Cox model because the exposure, in this case body weight, was fluctuating over the follow-up interval. They also divided up individuals just into quintiles of fluctuation. Individuals had very low changes, individuals who had very high changes at the highest quintile, and then looked at what happened over time. And just so I understand how they they came up with this measure of changes in body weight, 
did they, uh, it was like the absolute value of the change. So if your body weight went up or went down, they counted that as the same amount, went it, up by five or down by five pounds. That would be. It, that, that's exactly right. And it's that idea that it's the fluctuation, not weight loss or weight gain, but the fluctuation itself may be harmful. You may wonder, well, maybe people lose weight because it's part of an illness. You know, they have an underlying cancer or maybe they gain weight consistently because they have heart failure and they're accumulating fluid. So in a lot of their sensitivity analysis, they looked at for the direction of change as well to see if that would explain the effect. Uh, without jumping ahead to the results, it didn't affect it. But, you know, essentially this is a question with a lot of potential confounding. And so they tried to cut the data many, many ways to see whether they were consistently seeing the same effect. Okay, perfect. So uh, what did they find? So among patients in the highest quintile of body weight variation, the risk of coronary events was 64% higher the risk of cardiovascular events was 85% higher. Death was 124% higher. Myocardial infarction and stroke also higher. For stroke was 136% higher. I'm giving percentages to you because, as I mentioned, this is a heavily confounded question. So I could also report absolute differences in rates, which I will shortly, but it's really important to adjust for all the different, all the other differences between individuals, age differences, comorbidities, et cetera. If you looked at completely unadjusted models and just crude rates, for example, for cardiovascular events overall, the rate in the lowest quintile over five years was 22.4% versus 36.9% in the highest quintile of weight fluctuation, which is an absolute difference of 14%. So a very large absolute difference. I don't think in this case we should put too much focus on that absolute difference because of this problem of confounding. And the outcome was a composite outcome of cardiovascular endpoints? That's right. But they looked at it. They then further looked at just death, specific cardiovascular outcomes like stroke or MI. They saw the same pattern across all of these different outcomes. I think the overall conclusion of this study is that, yes, it's just the fluctuation itself that's very predictive above and beyond all other cardiovascular risk factors. So remember, they're also capturing your average BMI at the start of this trial. So they're accounting for the fact that some individuals are obese to start, some are normal weight, some are uh, some are overweight. They're looking at all other things adjusted for, like hypertension rates, lipid levels, et cetera, et cetera. But above and beyond all of those risk factors, then weight fluctuation seems predictive. We'll never have, obviously, a randomized trial to show this. Um, to the credit of these authors, they looked at variability using many different measures of variability. I mentioned clinic-to-clinic -clinic changes, but they also looked at overall standard deviations, um, they looked at overall fluctuation over longer periods of time or shorter periods of time, so not just subsequent clinic visits. And they found, that they found the same effect over and over again. So I'm struggling with what to do with this result because it's so counterintuitive to what we understand about weight loss and weight gain. It strikes me that this is a very testable question in many other data sets. So, you know, there's lots of studies of weight gain or weight loss and, and interventions to try to help people lose weight. So isn't this something you could replicate in many other trial data sets? Yes. So as I mentioned, in a patient population without pre-existing cardiovascular disease, there is already evidence. The first studies were done more than two decades ago to show that just variability above and beyond your baseline weight was predictive of all-cause mortality. Um, this could be tested in other data sets. Um, the prior evidence around variability, as I mentioned, it's not a sure thing. It is a controversial body of literature. Um, this is the first study. The reason why it's in the New England Journal, it's the first study that's looking at a patient population with pre-existing cardiovascular disease. 
Uh, and it's also a patient population where you would counsel around weight loss, so potentially inducing fluctuations. And so it, it is potentially very clinically relevant. I definitely would not be changing clinical practice around this, but it is clearly an important question to ask because the truth is many individuals may not achieve stable weight loss, but in fact have fluctuations in their weight throughout their lifetime. So bring this to the bedside for me. You said that this wouldn't change clinical practice for you. So should we still recommend that patients lose weight and try to achieve healthy weight loss? Is that an unsafe thing to do? If I have a patient who tries to lose weight and then their weight, you know, they gain weight again, should I tell them, you know what, calm down, settle down what you're doing, just maintain your current body weight? Like, what do I do with this information? Yeah, I don't think, unfortunately, you can take this to the bedside yet. Obviously, body weight and the effect of weight fluctuation or specifically of weight loss is one of the core tenets of how we counsel patients. Uh, the majority of our patients are counseled around weight loss if they're overweight or obese to start. And so I wouldn't take this one study and change clinical practice, but it is a very important question. It does raise this, you know, worrying observation that fluctuations in weight, which is what in fact happens with many of our patients, may in fact be harmful. So I think we're going to see further validating studies. Obviously, there's a lot of clinical trial data sets out there that have looked at cardiovascular disease and secondary prevention. I'm sure, you know, the race is on after this trial to look at other data sets now to see what they find. Okay, fascinating. I kind of hate you for introducing this degree of like confusion into my clinical practice. Well, with as a South Asian with pre-existing coronary artery disease and whose weight obviously does fluctuate, I feel bad for you. <laughs> yeah, well, at least this is some evidence to suggest maybe I'll just stop trying to lose weight altogether. Okay, time to change gears. So before we move on to our second article, Emily and Shaliza have a segment on sepsis that they are going to share with us. Hello, listeners. It's Emily and Shaliza, and we are back with a new special segment. We are so excited to share the new sepsis three criteria, including changes to the definitions of sepsis and septic shock, as well as new prognosticating measures for sepsis, including the QSOFA and SOFA scores. We will also discuss the new guidelines for managing sepsis. So Shaliza, before we go into the new sepsis three criteria, can you give us a bit of background on sepsis? Hey Emily and our listeners, glad to be back. Sepsis occurs when inflammatory mediator is released into the bloodstream to fight infection, trigger a cascade of changes that can ultimately lead to organ damage and or failure. Sepsis accounts for 10% of admissions to the ICU and is associated with 10 to 20% in hospital mortality. Previously, we used the term systemic inflammatory response syndrome, also known as SIRS, to define the syndrome. This consisted of an abnormal temperature, heart rate, respiratory rate, and white blood cell count. Sepsis was then considered SIRS plus a source of infection, and sepsis complicated by organ dysfunction was then termed severe sepsis, this could progress to septic shock, which was defined as sepsis-induced hypotension, persisting despite adequate fluid resuscitation. So why the need to get rid of SIRS and redefine sepsis? Great question. The reason for the redefinition is that no gold standard test exists for diagnosis, and therefore definitions and criteria that were clear and filled multiple domains were required. Moreover, sepsis is now recognized to have both pro- and anti-inflammatory components, which is why the SIRS definition is no longer all-encompassing. SIRS criteria have also been seen in patients that do not necessarily have an infection. 
the broader definitions also recognize biological and clinical variations among individuals. Okay, it makes sense to me. Uh, so what are these new definitions? So we no longer use the term SIRS, and we use the terms sepsis and septic shock. Sepsis is now defined as life-threatening organ dysfunction caused by a dysregulated host response to an infection. Septic shock is a subset of sepsis in which particularly profound circulatory, cellular, and metabolic abnormalities are associated with a greater risk of mortality than with sepsis alone. Patients with septic shock can be clinically identified by the vasopressor requirement to maintain a mean arterial pressure of 65 millimeters of mercury or greater, and a serum lactate level greater than two millimoles per liter in the absence of hypovolemia. Okay, so essentially we've gotten rid of the term SIRS and we have these new definitions of sepsis and septic shock. So how do clinicians apply these concepts day to day? We can use a new measure called the Sequential Sepsis-Related Organ Failure Assessment, SOFA score, in hospitalized patients with suspected infection to predict organ dysfunction and mortality. Even patients presenting with modest dysfunction can deteriorate quickly. Those with two or more points on the SOFA score have an in-hospital mortality of greater than 10%. SOFA is defined using measures of multiple organ functioning, such as the PaO2 over FiO2 ratio for respiratory status, platelets for coagulation, bilirubin for liver status, the MAP and catecholamine dose for cardiovascular status, the GCS score, and creatinine urine output for renal function. I've heard a little bit about this quick SOFA score, or QSOFA. Tell us a little bit about that. The QSOFA scoring system is used in settings where the components of SOFA are not always measured, since SOFA is typically measured in the ICU in order to predict mortality. We can use the QSOFA in out-of-hospital, emergency department, or general hospital ward settings. QSOFA ranges from 0 to 3, where you get one point each for respiratory rate greater than 21 breaths per minute, systolic arterial blood pressure less than or equal to 100 millimeters of mercury, or altered mental status. A significant rise is two or more points in the QSOFA score. And I'm going to tell you a little bit about the new guidelines for managing sepsis. So first of all, the former 2012 sepsis guidelines recommended using endpoints via early goal-directed therapy, also known as EGDT. The EGDT included a stepwise process to achieve certain targets for CVP, MAP, and central venous oxygen saturation, and hemoglobin, and we used these metrics nationally. How do the new guidelines reflect these changes we've been discussing? The 2016 guidelines have removed standard EGDT resuscitation targets. The guidelines instead recommend that sepsis-induced hypoperfusion be treated with at least 30 milliliters per kilogram of intravenous crystalloid given in three hours or less. It also recommends that instead of using static measures such as CVP to reassess, that we use frequent clinical reassessment and dynamic measures such as arterial pulse pressure variation, ultrasound assessment of IVC variation with respiration, and cardiac output response to passive leg raise. The other key component is managing the infection itself and anatomical source control. Mortality increases with delay of starting antibiotics. This must be done in addition to early cultures and daily review to modify antimicrobials. Okay, so we've covered a lot in this segment so far. Let's summarize. What are the key take-home points? First of all, we have new definitions of sepsis and septic shock to better encompass the pro- and anti-inflammatory traits of sepsis and to recognize individual variation. Second of all, we have new prognostic scores, the QSOFA and SOFA. 
In the case of SOFA, having two or more points above baseline is predictive of in-hospital mortality and length of stay. For QSOFA, two or more points is predictive of in-hospital mortality. SOFA is quite useful for ICU patients and QSOFA for out-of-hospital or emergency department patients. Third of all, we have these new management goals in which usual care or what physicians feel is best for an individual patient's clinical scenario is encouraged rather than EGDT. I think that's a great summary, thank you. You know, I feel as though we nailed sepsis in five minutes. I thought it was supposed to be a golden hour. <laughs> nice one, Emily. Thanks and thank you to our listeners. Okay, thanks Emily and Shaliza. Uh, let's get back to the episode. So the second article uh, for today's, uh, I guess, sort of grab bag of goodness, we're sort of bouncing around different clinical topics today. Uh, I wanted to talk a little bit about post-operative troponin measurement and its association with mortality. And these are results, new results from the VISION study. So Mo, what's the overall finding? Do you want to know what the vision is from these results? Do you want to know what we can see from these from these findings? Again, I really I really don't miss this. <laughs> so this was a prospective cohort study of nearly twenty two thousand patients who were aged forty five years or older and who were undergoing an inpatient non cardiac surgery, and the authors found that people who had elevated post operative troponin had higher 30-day mortality even when they didn't have any symptoms of having ischemia uh, or coronary events. Wow, fascinating and ominous. So what did we know prior to the vision study? Yeah, so actually from results from a previous iteration of the vision study, what we knew was that there's this phenomenon called uh, that has been given the label MINS or myocardial injury after non-cardiac surgery, M-I-N-S. And we know that if you have troponin elevations uh, after surgery, it's been associated with higher post-operative mortality. The questions that this study were trying to ask were, one, what about these new troponin assays? So the first iteration of this study, of the vision study, published results on about 15,000 patients using older traditional troponin assays. But we know now in the last you know, several years in clinical practice, there are new high-sensitivity troponin assays. So this question was asking, what about high-sensitivity troponin assays, and does that, is that useful in detecting myocardial ischemia after non-cardiac surgery? So that's question one. And question two that they asked is, what proportion of patients who have MINS would go undetected if we did not monitor them uh, with routine troponin measurement after surgery? So those are really the two major questions that this study asked. Okay, so how did they do this? Yeah, so the vision study was a prospective cohort study led out of uh, our colleagues at Hamilton, uh, PJ Devereaux and colleagues. Um, it was a prospective cohort study at 23 centers all around the world. They recruited an enormous number of patients, like nearly 22,000 patients who were theoretically a representative sample of adults. So they had a sampling method, including both evenings and weekends and daytimes to try to make this as representative as possible for all adults over the age of 45 undergoing non-cardiac surgery who were staying in hospital at least for one night. So they could have low-risk surgeries, but they needed, needed to be an inpatient procedure. And as I mentioned, this iteration of the study was using the new high-sensitivity troponin assays. All of the patients in this study had a high-sensitivity troponin drawn within 12 or 24 hours after surgery and then daily for three days post-operatively or for the duration of their time in hospital. 
Every patient who had an elevated troponin, they then had a dedicated research assistant assess that patient for features of ischemia, including looking at ECGs or looking for patient notes in the chart about symptoms. And then they also called and contacted patients 30 days post-operatively to assess for mortality. So um, here's what they found. I mentioned that it's nearly 22,000 participants. The average age was about 63 years. It's kind of what you would expect from an adult population. It was around the world, but it looks like a sort of mostly developed country kind of sample. So 20% of the patients had diabetes, 50% had hypertension, you know, 13% had coronary disease. And one important consideration when you're looking at troponin elevation is renal function. And the vast majority of patients, around 80% had normal renal function. Okay. In terms of the surgeries these people were doing, it was a broad range of surgeries. About 35% were considered low-risk procedures, and 65% were considered major procedures, you know, things involving general anesthetic and general surgery, orthopedic surgery, neurosurgery, so a whole broad range. What they found was that death is relatively uncommon. Uh, so it, death at 30-day mortality occurs in 1%, approximately 1% of participants. And they found that there was a significant relationship between post-operative troponin elevation and 30-day mortality. So 20% of the patients had an elevated post-operative troponin, which is pretty surprising, like one in five, that's, a, that's not insignificant. And they basically ranked people according to, or stratified people according to the amount of troponin elevation. So they, they set different thresholds for the troponin elevation. And at the highest threshold, so these are people who had a high sensitivity troponin assay of greater than 1,000, uh, I don't forget what the units, like nanograms per liter, death was 30% in that group, whereas people who had undetectable troponin, death was 0.1%. So, you know, an enormous difference in the risk of death between those groups, and it increased in a very dose-response relationship. So people who had mild troponin elevation had a slightly increased mortality, you know. And the, the important cutoff that they identified was that if your high-sensitivity troponin using this assay was greater than 20, uh, then you had a significantly increased risk of death. Okay. And I should say that the, the lab value of what's abnormal is 14. So just slightly greater than the lab value of abnormal. Okay. You're felt to be at an increased risk of death. So very interesting that this, this measurement seems to be quite well calibrated to risk of death in the post-operative period. Yeah, I mean, I think the the immediate parallel on the general medicine side that I think of is the troponin elevations that we see not in post-surgical patients, but in patients who are admitted with some underlying uh, health event, whether it's a pneumonia, a UTI, et cetera. And then we see that troponin elevation. And this actually strongly suggests that the level of elevation is also very predictive. And I, I don't think at the clinical bedside, I don't think at the bedside that we have integrated that information. We know it's a risk marker, but this shows this very strong relationship between level of elevation, which is very striking. Yeah, you know, one of the things that they also evaluated for was whether these patients had other insults that could cause what they called non-ischemic troponin elevation, and something like sepsis was an example of that. They found that 11% had that sort of non-ischemic elevation. They felt that everyone else who had troponin elevation was because of myocardial ischemia or some demand at uh, ischemia. You know, it's it's quite interesting. So they, they come back to look at 
this question of whether people had other symptoms or other ischemic findings. So 20% of the patients with MINS fulfilled criteria for an MI, meaning that they had the elevated troponin and also one other ischemic feature, whether it was a symptom or ECG changes. And which one was it, a symptom or ECG changes? So 68% of people with these MIs were asymptomatic. Okay. And their point was that then we would miss 68% of MIs postoperatively if we don't measure troponin routinely. Of the people, so that's people who fully had an MI. So nearly 70% of people who had an MI would not be detected. In terms of people who have MINS, so just have the troponin elevation without, let's say, ECG changes, 93% would not be detected if you didn't routinely measure it. So the vast majority of them do not have any symptoms. And yet we know it's an important prognostic marker. So this makes, I think, a pretty compelling case for in certain patients actually measuring troponin postoperatively. And so I think it's a potentially practice-changing study. Absolutely. So is it practice-changing for you? Yeah, so it's a good question. I think, uh, you know, the natural response, I think, to most clinicians here is, okay, so my patient has an elevated troponin, now what? In the postoperative period, like, what do I actually do with that information, right? And as someone who attends in the perioperative service from time to time, we often see that. So we'll see, you know, an, an older patient, let's say, it doesn't need to be an older patient, but I remember a lady comes to mind, you know, there's an 80-year-old woman who was previously quite well who had a knee replacement and had this elevated troponin postoperatively, and I was called to go see her, and I had no idea what to do with that, you know? I'm like, how does this change anything? So I think the bottom line here is this seems to be a very important biomarker with important prognostic ability, and as yet it's not totally clear how we would intervene. But it does change my practice. I now practice according to the 2016 you know, perioperative guidelines where you measure troponins postoperatively in people who are at an elevated predicted cardiac risk. And I think this helps me understand a little bit more. It's more compelling, makes more compelling evidence for me about why it's important to do that. Yeah, absolutely. Fascinating. And it feels like there's a trial on the way, right? Yeah, like an intervention trial. Yeah, I, it has I, to be. That's the next step. Yeah, I, th I think that's right. And to my knowledge, actually, I believe there is a trial underway uh, looking at a randomized trial intervening in people with MINS, I believe with oral anticoagulants, potentially dibigatran. I could be wrong about that. Don't quote me. Instead, I invite our listeners to go to clinicaltrials.gov and search under Devereaux and see what you can find. <laughs> so a uh, very fascinating study. Thanks, Amal. Okay. Uh, Fahad? We've bounced around a few different clinical topics. Time to land on our favorite part of the show, the good stuff segment. I invite you to tell me something I probably have already heard about from the New York Times as you're wont to do with your good stuff recommendations for our highly learned audience. Well, I see you miss me as well. So uh, this is not from the New York Times. It's from the Washington Post. A and much lesser known outlet. That's right. And uh, unfortunately, it's depressing. Uh, and it kind of made my stomach turn a bit. It's, uh, it's an article about uh, the largest outbreak of measles that's ever happened in Minnesota. Uh, 41 cases have emerged in the last few months, centered heavily among the Somali community. Um, and just to provide some context for this outbreak, uh, just over a decade ago, the rates of MMR vaccine use among the Somali community in Minnesota was about 92% higher than the U.S. average. And a decade later, by 2014, the rates of MMR usage amongst the Somali community had dropped to 42%, um, substantially below the rest of Minnesota, which remained at that high average in the low 90s. 
So how did this happen? Uh, so Andrew Wakefield, uh, the notorious fraudulent researcher from the United Kingdom, the individual who claimed that there was a link between MMR vaccines and autism, this paper was rated, later found to be fraudulent. It was withdrawn from the Lancet. He was stripped of his medical license. He has now moved to the United States and he is an anti-vaccine activist based out of Texas. And so in this decade where the vaccination rates dropped from 92% to 42% among Somalis, he made repeated visits to the Somali community to advocate against vaccine usage. This was a claim that was debunked through epidemiologic analysis, but he made that claim. And I just want to finish with a quote from a Somali physician in Minnesota. He said, it's remarkable to come in and talk to a population that's vulnerable and marginalized and who doesn't necessarily have the capacity for advocacy for themselves and to take advantage of that. It's abhorrent. So I couldn't say it uh, any better. Uh, really stomach turning and just painful to read about this kind of thing for me. Okay, thanks for bringing that up. I didn't know that that's what Wakefield was up to in his yeah. uh, post-Lancet days. Furthering his good work in the world. Okay, so my good stuff segment is a bit of a change of pace. It's about an interesting new approach to birth control that's targeted at men. So this is a technology created by a startup company that's being rolled out in, in India, uh, which is a technique that injects a polymer gel into the male epididymis, the sperm-carrying tubes in the scrotum. The gel has, and I quote the article, the consistency of melted chocolate, and it carries a positive charge that acts as a buffer on negatively charged sperm, damaging their heads and tails and rendering them infertile. So the treatment is reversible, and what you can do is you can give a second shot into the scrotum that breaks down the gel and then allows the sperm to reach the penis normally. So there's an expected launch of this across India over the next couple of years. And I have to say, it sounds like a highly unpleasant approach to contraception, uh, but uh, is a really interesting uh, approach targeting a sector, targeting half of the population who often are not targeted for contraceptive technologies. Well, it sounds like they're not doing themselves any favors with this chocolate analogy. Like, <laughs> come up. Personally, come up with I think the marketing. chocolate analogy is the best part of the whole thing. <laughs> All right. So, I invite you to check that out. Uh, I read about it on an article at uh, Bloomberg.com. Thanks, Fahad. It was uh, nice to do this with you again. Bring back some good memories. Yeah, let's wait at least another year next time. <laughs> All right. Talk to you later. Take care. The Rounds Table is hosted online by Healthy Debate. You can find us at healthydebate.ca slash theroundstable, follow us on Twitter at roundstable, or find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash roundstablepodcast. Thanks for joining us this week. Who knows what the wonderful world of medicine holds for next week? <laughs>